Good afternoon. My name is Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Our speaker today is Chad Hellwinkle, who is research assistant professor at the University of Tennessee Agricultural Analysis Center. The book that he is going to review is The One Straw Revolution, An Introduction to Natural Farming. Uh, I have a few things to say for, I don't know, it's going to take me 10 or 15 minutes, and then I kind of want it to be more discussions. So I'm just going to give a brief introduction to the story of Fukuoka, who he is. He was, a, uh, he was born in Japan in 1913 and raised on a 10-acre farm in a southern island of Japan. His family had owned this, this 10 acres for hundreds of years. And uh, in the mid-1930s, he, he was about 25. He was a bright, young scientist. He was an agricultural researcher at a, at a university. Uh, successful, well-liked, good social life, all you know, normal by, by any means, and fit into Japanese culture. And then uh, he, got, he experienced a bout of pneumonia. So he got sick, uh, ended up in a hospital, started feeling really lonely and isolated. And um, that was kind of the, the beginning of his problems. And then he got better uh, physically, but still this, this nagging uh, loneliness and isolation kind of held on to him. And, you know, lack of meaning hit him. Uh, started feeling anxiety, probably panic attacks. So he was like this for many months, and he would wander the hills at night and just thinking about life and, and what, what the meaning of it all is. And uh, one morning he was <clears throat> up on a hill overlooking the, the bay, and he kind of collapsed from exhaustion. He pretty much just gave up hope, and um, you know he despaired. And then uh, and then he had a profound insight, and I'll read that quote here. So in a daze, I watched the harbor light uh, grow light, seeing the sunrise, yet not, somehow not seeing it. As the breeze blew up from below the bluff, the morning mist suddenly disappeared. Just at that moment, a night heron appeared, gave a sharp cry, flew away into the distance. I could hear the flapping of its wings. In an instant, all my doubts and gloomy mist of my confusion vanished. Everything I had held in firm conviction, everything upon which I had ordinarily lied, was swept away with the wind. I felt that I understood just one, one thing. Without uh, my thinking about them, words came to my mouth. In this world, there is nothing at all. I felt that I understood nothing. Then he goes on to, he explains that, uh, that insight a little bit more. Uh, that realization completely changed my life. It is nothing that you can really talk about, but it, is, it might be put something like this. Humanity knows nothing at all. There is no intrinsic value in anything, and everything, every action is futile, meaningless effort. This may seem preposterous, but if you put it into words, that is the only way to describe it. So that doesn't sound too optimistic, you know, when you, when you think about that. But he was elated after that. All his, all this, you know, stuff on his shoulders just, just flew away, and he was in a, uh, a feeling of release and euphoria kind of overcame him. And immediately the next day, he marched into his job, and this is uh, mid-30s Japan, you know, ramping up for war. I think they might have already been at war. And he went in there and he said, with a smile on his face, I quit. And everybody looked at him like he was just truly crazy. 
because um, I don't know a whole lot about Japanese culture, but I imagine just going in and quitting is not um, an easy thing for people to do or, or to understand in, in, the, in their friends. Uh, after that, his concerned friends you know, bid him well, and he traveled a, a bit, um, talking to people on the streets, living in the streets, talking to him about his profound revolution that humanity knows nothing and it's all meaningless. <laughs> and uh, he didn't get a very good reception. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so he reevaluated his, li- his life plan uh, from, from that moment. He said, well, maybe I need to go back to the farm, the family farm, and put my uh, insight into action. So he went back to the farm, and his dad uh, gave him a few uh, tan- uh, orange trees, and he started farming. And uh, he, he wanted to, you know, if humanity doesn't know anything at all, leave the growing to the trees. So he left it growing to the trees, these were pruned trees. He let them go wild. Immediately they, um, they, they grew into each other and choked out and died, and he killed the whole orchard. Uh, he, he failed. His, his vision had failed him, and his dad was a little bit angry at him and encouraged him to go uh, off and find a job somewhere else. And, this was, uh, and he thought about that, and there was, a, there was a draft going on in Japan. This is World War II. World War II. And uh, they needed researchers in agriculture to increase production. And so he took that option, and he went and he worked for eight years as a research scientist uh, working on industrial agriculture, uh, chemicals and uh, hybrids and all, all that. And uh, he was successful. He, he you know, rose up to a supervisor or whatever. Uh, after the war, he hadn't forgot his vision, and he, um, he went back to the farm and uh, he spent the, rem- the next 30 years, or his whole life, but about 30 years perfecting this vision of uh, another form of agriculture as the basis is we don't know anything. And the- here I have a quote of his, um, his method here. The usual way to go about developing a method is to ask, how about trying this? How about trying that? Bring in a variety of techniques one upon the other. This is modern agriculture, it is only, and it only results in making the farmer busier. My way was opposite. I was aiming at a pleasant, natural way of farming, which results in making the work easier instead of harder. How about not doing this? How about not doing that? That was my way of thinking. So after 30 years, he accomplished something. So what did he accomplish? He developed an agricultural technique there in Japan using no chemicals, no artificial fertilizers, and he did not till the soil and no machinery. And his techniques would build soil year after year and increase productivity of, of the ground and also it uses, used less hours of labor. And most importantly, it matched his industrial neighbors in yield. So he was yielding the same or better than his industrial neighbors. And what's really revolutionary about it is he did not flood the fields. In Japan, for hundreds or thousands of years, they had used paddy rice where they had uh, flood the fields. They'd go in and plant a little nursery of, of the rice and then, and then transplant them and go out in the field and stick each one in, in the flooded fields. He flooded it occasionally just to reduce weeds, but he did not flood. So this is... Bizarrely different than anything his neighbors had seen in their lifetime. So it's good for the earth, good for humans. There's no, there's no downside. That, that's why I really admire this book and admire him. It's, uh, he'd really created something revolutionary. 
So how did he accomplish this? This is important because I think the way he accomplished this is different than other schools like permaculture or um, natural systems, our culture that Wes Jackson started. So I'm going to dwell on this a little bit. Uh, Remember his insight. Humans know nothing at all. A realization that using intellect or cleverness to solve problems doesn't work and leads away from real solutions. In fact, it makes the problems worse. Think about his problem and his mind going at it, trying to solve that problem and the meaning of life, and it made the problem worse. He had given up and despaired at solving his problem of the meaning of life. His insight came when he looked at the world uh, with exhausted eyes and with no words. His brain was shut off, and he just looked at the world, and, and in came the world, and put his problems to rest. He really fell into love, like love the noun. He fell into love with the world in an instant. So he applied that revelation, non-thinking, non-doing, to the problem of agriculture. He looked at the world as it is in its natural and unhindered state, and he knew that that was what true agriculture looks like. Okay, I got another quote here, page 118. Broad natural farming arises of itself when a unity exists between man and nature. It forms to nature as it is and to the mind as it is. It proceeds from the conviction that if the individual temporarily abandons human will and so allows himself to be guided by nature, nature responds by providing everything. With that insight, he went about uh, whittling away at at modern agriculture. He uh, was kind of ripping it apart, throwing out machinery here, throwing out chemicals there, inviting in the insects and the weeds over here as substitutes and using them, using nature. Probably cleverness and logic and thought were used along the way to solve problems, of course, but it was kept in its proper place as a tool. And for the grand direction and for the roadblocks to to the grand direction, observation and presence were used. He's really stating what all the great artists, great singers, songwriters, that uh, it didn't come from me, it came from outside. There's another way of knowing. True creation cannot come from the human intellect, but from outside in the whole. We've all heard this even from scientists like uh, you know Newton's apple. When he gave up, he went, sat on a tree and an apple hit him. So it's really acknowledging that, the, that there's... Um, there's something else. There's another way of knowing out there that we've kind of we've forgotten as, as humans. And uh, what's becoming increasingly obvious today with problems getting even larger and larger scale is how to solve these problems. And we probably need true creation to happen. And, and maybe this do-nothing method that is in this book is, is an alternative. You know, like Einstein said, like, you're not going to solve a problem by using the same thoughts or a way that that the problem was created in. Uh, when I read this book, I, I kept on dwelling on despair when he gave up, when he, when he quit. And uh, I think despair is, is underrated. And we've all experienced it. We, we've all experienced despair to some degree. And, and if you remember your moments of despair in life, at that moment there's, there's usually a great release and something comes in. We, we've kind of been taught to ignore the, the despairing moments in life. Uh, to get away from them as quickly as possible and put them out of, out of our mind. But maybe when it comes, uh, we should linger in despair a little longer and invite it into our hearts. And most importantly, hold on to its vision when despair subsides. I thought it was encouraging to, to see that we're, we're not alone anymore. Think of Fukuoka 
in his day in 1930s Japan. And he was truly alone. He was a frontiersman. You know, can you imagine quitting your job during the war and going back to the farm and disavowing all progress right when it was just taking off? His neighbors thought he was crazy. But, um, but then came the 1960s upheaval, the 1970s back to the land movement. Uh, visionaries like Wendell Berry, Wes Jackson, Bill Molson, uh, the permaculture movement, agroecology, and now, you know, in the last 10 years, the local uh, farming, local food movement. But what I find uh, most encouraging as I look around Knoxville is uh, we have young people that are living in groups, and, they're, and some of them are here today, I'd like to see, and uh, they're doing interesting stuff. They're composting waste for community gardens. They're delivering mail on bikes for free. Uh, they're baking bread in their houses and selling it to their neighbors. They're fixing bikes for kids. And they're working part-time by choice. These are, it's really a growing body of, of quitters out there. You know? <laughs> and I think that's the most encouraging thing I've seen. And I'm 44, so I, I think I've been around long enough to say that's, it's, a, it's a new thing, I think. It's encouraging. Volunteer quitters. Go Big Orange. So you can tell I'm not just talking about agriculture anymore. I'm talking about really everything. And if we want to return to talking about agriculture, I think we're going to do that here in a minute, and uh, maybe the system that Foucault developed and go more in depth. But I just wanted to say that to me this book uh, message can be broadened a little larger and dwell on the, the, the spiritual. I've been in permaculture a while, but the, he really uh, opened up the spiritual side of the agroecology to, to me. So Foucault's story is about what we all must do to heal the earth and culture. We must connect again with that other that so many of us have told us about, you know, artists, and lose our fear of lack. So that's all I have right now. What do you guys want to talk about? Are you familiar with uh, Ruth Stout? And she was Rex Stout's sister. She certainly did her gardening in that, that style back, back in the 70s, I guess. Can you tell a little example about her gardening well, technique? She was a, probably in her 70s or 80s, back in the 70s. And uh, her style was absolutely the no, do-nothing gardening. She would put uh, straw down and just throw her potatoes uh, out there and let them sprout and then cover them with more straw. And she never tilled or, or did anything like that, which was pretty unusual at that time. Yeah. But, the, yeah, those uh, <clears throat> old uh, films are really funny, I think. Yeah, I think I've, somebody's put those on the Permaculture Guild site. Oh, I think, oh, I've, I think I've seen her, like, just an older lady just throwing down potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she takes her uh, lawn chair out, out, you know, and sits in the garden and just tosses the, the, the potatoes out like that. It's pretty funny. It's great. We're, there's more and more examples out there of uh, of weed patches that are are productive, basically like that. It's people have permission to do that now, you know. You know, I have for several years tried to be as natural as possible. I've also just sort of taken the approach of hoping predators just show up to take care of things like the harlequin bugs. That's not working. <laughs> yeah. Any suggestions? 
Well, I think Fukuoka uh, hit the nail on the head when he first went back to his father's place and he was uh, put in charge of those uh, apricot trees. And uh, he just let them go, thinking that they would somehow take care of themselves. Well, a cultivated tree like that is pretty artificial anyway, and just to let it go, it's not going to survive probably so yeah i have a quote of what you're talking about there my conviction was that crops grow themselves and should not have to be grown i had acted in the belief that everything should be left to take its natural course but i found that if you apply this way of thinking all at once before long things do not go so well this is abandonment not natural farming i just wanted to share with you that there's a lot of work going on right now looking at nature and the way things work and what we can do. If you're a cattle farmer, you're taught to put the minerals here and the water over there and the you know, shade over there so the cattle are going to be all over the field so the manure will be dropped. And they actually have, NRCS has people running out there putting little tags at every little poop pile to say, oh, and then they come back and take a picture and say, look how this worked. And we're taught to grow native grasses, native grasses to this area instead of the regular fescue that we always are used to because they come at a different time of year. And so they belong here, and so they're going to give you more to eat. And we're taught to rotate the cattle and only let them, instead of eating down to the ground, only let them eat the top third of the plant and then move them off because that makes the field healthier. So there's a whole lot of work going on, and if you want to learn more about it, you can look up somebody named Joel Salatin. S-A-L-A-T-I-N, and the name of his farm is Polyface, B-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E. And he's kind of the leader of this kind of thinking, where you, instead of using chemicals and a lot of hard work, for instance, they also advocate no-till, putting your crops out without tilling. We just drill into the ground and don't tear it up. Um, do you see any hopeful signs of progress in using these methods, more natural approaches to farming, uh, as it relates to the, the huge corporate farms that are so much a factor of the total food supply? Yeah. Uh, now, Fukuoka would, would warn against that, I guess, that, that um, of course, they're, gonna, they're, they're, they're getting smarter and smarter. And they're going to, and large corporate farms are going to pick up on no tillage methods. For example, no tillage has taken off. It's still industrial. They're putting on the note, the, the roundup, but they're not tilling the soil. So it's it's good for the soil, but you know, bad for us and <laughs> for everything else. You know, corporate agriculture will respond, is responding. Practices are getting better at at some at some points, but when they do that, they create another problem. They're, they're deferring the problem onto something else, I think. I, th- I think corporate agriculture is still a problem, and we still need to, um, you know, I, I advocate small farms, and I think that that's going to be the future after oil goes up in price even more and becomes less available, that uh, corporate farms are just not going to be economically feasible also. So we might as well invest in, in these small farms now. But if we expect much of a movement among the, the very large corporate farms, which are, again, 
environmentally a huge factor as well as a large percentage of the overall food supply. Mm -hmm. The leadership has to come from new thinking among the universities and people getting out and promoting practices that are better not only environmentally and and perhaps health-wise, but also can be very uh, efficient and productive. And you know, that's what they look for. And I, I'm sure there's people doing that. Um, you got to focus on something in life. And and me personally, I I think it's a lost <laughs> lost cause. Like like you said, you know, UT Ag Institute's like a big ship, and it takes a long time to turn turn it around. One of the bright spots there is there's an organic unit out there now in South Knoxville. Actually, it started maybe five years ago, and they uh, they have a organic CSA even where they're training uh, people in in uh, organic methods. This this kind of integrated uh, natural systems farming is not really not really there yet, but I think it's uh, a bright spot where it can be built upon, and that's that's one of the bright spots. There's, there's agriculture today, which is most of our food is corporate large systems agriculture. There's, there's a new movement, and local food is coming up. It's usually around population centers. It's close to where people live. It's in the semi-urban uh, periphery hinterlands around cities. And there are small farmers uh, coming in, new farmers coming in and do that. And there's innovative techniques being, being developed, like uh, management-intensive grazing. I think that has a lot of potential to, to grow in the future, and then corporate agriculture will become less and less relevant, I think, as time goes on. The UT Experiment Station in Jackson has fields that are in production that are no-till fields as part of their work there. Yeah. So these things are happening. Mm-hmm. And there's also UT Experiment Station in Crossville, which is very active in hydroponic gardening and making tomatoes that don't taste like styrofoam available year-round to the people in that area. I've read one of Joel Salton's books by the title of Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. (laughs) And it's all about how in his small farming practices, he's constantly challenged in what he's trying to do and how he's trying to make it available to his neighbors to buy by the regulations promulgated by the USDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and Food Safety Administration, and a lot of other alphabet soup agencies. And his point is to be sort of a raving libertarian, but a take-home point that I think the rest of us could stomach is that we, we are maybe looking in the wrong direction to look for top-down change. To some extent, the alphabet soup federal agencies can help promote change once the technocrats pick up on some of these things and, and learn about them, and which they are, thanks to the research going on at UT. And that's one direction it can come from. That's still a little bit bottom-up to the extent that the technocrats try to educate the people who are making the rules and passing the laws. And those are the ones that are really separated from the research. But bottom-up are just us people who eat food. It's up to us, and it may require us to do some direct action, to do some civil disobedience, sell our honey to our neighbors, do our little bicycle bread peddling, you know, whatever we do, if we keep it hyper-local, 
and our neighbors understand who we are and what we're up to and are in agreement with that, I think that's where the powerful change is going to come from. Yeah. I wonder what the implications are for suburban living. Uh, For example, suppose I decided to stop cutting my grass and trimming my shrubbery and I lived in a gated community where there are all kinds of rules about what I might do and might not do. To tell you the truth, I'm letting the ivy take over the front yard and every day I bless it and thank it for doing so. Uh, But what if I planted uh, my front yard in wildflower seeds, for example, or grew tomatoes and sweet potatoes there instead? Yeah, um, that's where your, your political skills would come in, I'm sure. Because <laughs> that's, that's really what it would take at, at the grassroots level. At, 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 if, if you're in a suburban area, you need to get in there and talk. The city will tell you to cut your grass if it's higher than, I think it's eight inches, yeah. and they'll, uh, they'll make you pay. Otherwise, challenge it, please. Because it prevents people from having gardens in their front lawns, because I've never seen a tomato plant produced that's less than 12 inches tall. And in order to make that movement happen, it takes people challenging it on the grassroots level, I, I, I think. But. That, that being said, our city is, is very supportive of gardens in the front yard. Like I have a, a, live in Park Ridge, and I've had the, somebody call on, on you know, long grass in the yard, and I call them up and I say, you know, okay, I'll, I'll take care of that lawn, but, you know, right in front there, that's a garden. You know, it might look a little weedy, but, oh, okay, that's a garden. That's, that's no problem. We're all in favor of gardens. You know, I've heard that a couple times. So we're, we're lucky here in Knoxville, I think. Uh, edible landscape is a big trend. A lady that wrote the book about edible landscape from California was the guest speaker who was featured at the Nashville Lawn and Garden Show three years ago. Oh. And she told her story of moving into a, neighborhood where there were million dollar houses and she started digging up her sod and putting in her front yard vegetable garden and it became the favorite place for the neighbors to come after she got it going and they understood what she was about and they loved to come and pick the fruit and you know she told them that all they had to do was take at least 10 zucchinis home every time they came by if they wanted the other things (laughs) that's great I read one Straw Revolution way back in the 70s, and it completely changed my life, literally. Oh, great. And as far as digging up your front yard or whatever, fortunately, I had a foundation problem with my house in the North Knoxville area. And so since they had to take out the sidewalk anyway, I just said, take out the yard, the lawn, such as it was, and I put in daylilies which are completely edible from top to bottom. And I've put in some blueberry plants, and i put in some bush cherries and so on and so forth. And nobody has complained yet. They may have thoughts, but so far as my neighbors seem to be concerned, they don't care. Um, Now, if they looked at the backyard, (laughs) it might be a little bit different. But there I'm using the forest farm ideas, I've got three pawpaws, a couple of persimmons, crabapple. I'm looking for plants that will be as resistant to disease as possible so I don't have to do very much to them. However, 
uh, along the lines of Melissa's comment about the, the bugs coming, I meet my level of despair when it comes to the privet and the creeping Charlie. Huh. And if anybody has any suggestions about what to do with that, I would love to because I put down my mulch and I put down my straw and I, you know, try to build my ground. And the creeping Charlie, expletive deleted creeping Charlie, just <laughs> grows right over it. And I spend half of my life digging out privet and pulling out creeping Charlie. So I, I, got, I got the solution for that. There's a plant called uh, kudzu. It's great. It just... <laughs> I, I don't have any solution. Uh, I think she uh, suggested something that uh, if we leave here, we can go down on the market and see the beautiful pots of flowers. And they're created by a man named Blankenship and his artist friend. They're down there now with a truck selling flowers on the uh, food market. Okay. And uh, a solution could be to network more and get more. See, an artist and a gardener got together, and look what happened. Yeah, yeah. And if we could all network more and and talk about things further, well, then solutions would rise. Yeah. And uh, we started a network a few years called the Knoxville Permaculture Guild. It's online, and it's been kind of dead lately. I can completely understand it because I work on a computer, and the last thing I want to do is get on a computer and talk about gardening. You know, But you're, you're right. We do need to, to network and get together and talk about this. Fukuoka was alone. It took him 30 years, and he, he was successful. But if we have you know, two, three, ten, ten people in a a geographic area where we can see each other and go to each other's backyards, you know, on a weekly basis or something like that and talk to each other on our front porches and have beers and discuss this, we can probably make progress toward eliminating those plants you're talking about or, uh, you know, developing a system of agriculture for here that resembles a forest. So good suggestion. Maybe we should all find neighbors. We'd be willing to do that. Talking about the whole forest Making it is our native agriculture more like a forest, and I've been thinking about this. And one of the things that this Fukuoka's work suggests to me is maybe this is hard to swallow, but maybe certain things that we like to eat. I know certain things that I like to eat aren't just necessarily appropriate to grow here. They just don't grow well here. There's there have been a few things that I've come to the conclusion I've tried to grow them year after year, and I think. Hmm, this is a thing that grows really well up in Maine. Maine's a whole lot colder and a whole lot, you know, different climatically than this. Certain things just might not grow very well in this region, so we just don't grow them here. Or, you know, we don't try. Because if you do, then you've got to get into a lot of pushing and a lot of machinations, and that creates a lot of the sort of problems that I think guy like Fukuoka is trying to get away from. We don't grow rice here. Yeah. Um, I've always thought the hills around the, around Knox would be better for grazing goats than grazing cattle. It's more of a goat-like environment, <laughs> you know. So anyway, that was just my little thought about it. And the American chestnut would be great to have back, wouldn't it, as a staple, a protein staple? You mentioned that 
even the, the do-nothing school of thought is even a little bit different than permaculture. Um, and whenever I was first introduced to the idea of permaculture, I was like, this is it. This, is, this solves everything, and you know, it's, it covers all bases. And then I read this book, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, this is it. <laughs> and <laughs> Regardless, my question is, can you elaborate a little bit more um, specifically about the differences between the do-nothing school of thought and the permaculture school of thought? Yeah. Um, do-nothing, he tries to get away from the intellect and the mind and thoughts as much as possible and working on intuition and permaculture, and I, I just read a, a little blog entry on this today when I'm preparing for this. And in the early years of Molson, he, he didn't really talk a whole lot about intuition and uh, the spirituality side of, of making a connection to the larger whole. It was more uh, technical, uh, scientific-based, and you know, smart science and, and realizing that nature is our ally and we need to make our systems resemble natural systems and it's going to be easier for us and better for the for the for the environment. Since that time, they've kind of fused, and permaculture has a lot of Fukuoka in it. It's it's very very similar. You know, I got the the principles of permaculture here. There's there's twelve principles, and uh, the first one is observe and interact. If you if you'd have Fukuoka's principles, he'd probably say observe and interact. That's it. You know, and then everything else would follow from from that. But uh, permaculture with Bill Molson goes on, you know, observe and interact, catch and store energy, um, obtain a yield, apply self-regulation and feedback, using value, value renewable resources and services. And he has 12 of these. And all of these Fukuoka did in his system, you know, integrate rather than segregate. You know, he wasn't segregating. Use small, slow solutions. He was building soil with earthworms and roots over, over, over years to, to, build, to build up that soil. Use edges and value uh, the marginal. Permaculture, that's big, that, like the edge in between two ecosystems when they come together is a lot more life and it's a lot more action there. And you can get a lot of diversity in, in that edge and beneficial, beneficial insects and for both ecosystems, like a forest and a in a field right there. And uh, Fukuoka used, if you, if you read the book, part of it he goes into um, uh, his orchard and forest agriculture and the wild agriculture out there. And he really does use those edges. It's not just about grain agriculture. He, he uses the edges and stuff. So I think there is, a, it's, it's a lot of similarities to the way you, you state it. And they've, like I said, they've come together over time. So this is kind of just going on what Frank was saying a little while ago, but I feel like with agriculture or with living or a lot of these things, maybe what Fukuoka is saying and a lot of these other kind of practitioners are saying is that we have to fit our ideas to the ecosystem instead of fitting the ecosystem to our ideas, you know, and, you know, as Frank was kind of pointing out, you know, we have these assumptions about, what we can grow or how we can live or what sort of lifestyle we should have. And they're sort of, they can be abstract and they can be in our head, but, you know, the, the shift that Fukuoka is proposing. Um, and maybe we should start kind of trying to implement ourselves in our own lives is, you know, looking at, at what our environment is and then trying to fit, um, you know, the kind of agriculture we have and the lives that we have into that 
instead of the other way around. Yep. That's a good summary of it. As Wendell Berry said, uh, we came to this continent with, with vision, but not with sight. Did you happen to go to the NRCS meeting over at UT at the Plankton Animal Science Building? No, I did not. Ago? There was a guy there. I just asked the lady that left what his name was. His first name was Ray. And he was there, and, and all the NRCS people were there, and a lot of local farmers and ranchers. But he was from Oregon, I think, originally, and he had a, like a Ph.D. in agronomy. And he had a friend who had a 500-acre place there, and he was trying to grow soybeans and crops of all sorts, and he was going broke in the process. And so he thought that he would try to help him. And this was six or eight years back. And he, he said, between the two of us, we couldn't figure out any way to keep this guy from losing his farm because of the fertilizer expenses, the machinery, the fuel cost, um, chemicals, the whole nine yards. And he was just frustrated by the fact that he was so educated and yet he couldn't help this guy keep from losing his farm. And since that time, he started trying to figure out a way that he could have helped that guy. And he's done a complete turnaround, kind of like your guy with the trip to the mountain. And uh, he uh, he's concluded that his, his demonstration that he gave was he had a clump of soil that was organic soil from a pasture with worms and grub worms and tumble bugs and what have you. He, he put a clump of that in a big cylinder of water and it just floated on top the whole time he spoke. And he took another clump out of that crop, you know, like the soybean field, one from North Carolina and one from Tennessee, and he put a clump of that dirt in there and it just turned into muddy water instantly. And he says that you just you, you destroy the soil by the chemicals and the fertilize and it, the stuff that glues it together that helped that clump of organic soil with all the stuff in it together. When it rains, it didn't erode. All that other stuff just washes off when it rains. It just turned into mud. And he gave the example of the center part of Africa as being... It used to be the bread belt in Africa, and now it's a desert. And the same thing happened during the Dust Bowl here. Gave the example of the grasses in North Dakota when the Lewis and Clark first got there would rub the cinches on the horses' girths in two because it was so tall. And then he, and then he said the difference between the soil temperature of that grass and that bare ground would be as much as 20, 25 degrees difference. Oh, wow. And, and we're just killing ourselves, looks to me like, Global warming's real because of that very thing. We've warmed the earth by taking all of the organic material out of the ground and the cover off the top of the ground. Yeah. And I just, you know, I commend you for what you're doing. You're you're swimming upstream. You're, but there was not a person that I could recognize at that meeting 
from UT. And we're, you know, it was at the UT facility, and that was maybe a good thing that they allowed us to come there and, and talk. But it, it's, it's real, but when we've got chemical companies giving money to the universities, we've got fertilized companies giving money to the universities, we've got all these things that are going on that are just so far removed from your your guy there from Japan. Yeah. I mean we we've got to kind of figure out I don't know we look to the universities for guidance and leadership, but sadly I don't think it's gonna come from the universities. I don't think we can we can force them to, you know, get off their butt and look at this stuff. But we can't go to them to get it because they're polluted with with yeah. all of these monies that are donated to promote something that's not right. We've got to feed the world. We can't do it in our backyards, sadly. I mean, I commend all you people. I live on a lot of land, and I, I raise cattle. But this guy, Ray, said we can't do it without cattle. Mm-hmm. The way he wanted to go and talk to that guy that had the 500 acres that was going broke, yeah. he wanted to get him to put cattle on there. In, in high-density pasturing cattle and move them and have a poop here and a poop here with urine all in between. And yeah. it just everything underneath the ground is happy as a lark. And he can come in and do like your Japanese guy did, produce the same amount of corn that the guy next door who's using chemical fertilizer and, and chemicals. But every university meeting I've been to says the cow is depleting the ozone, she's polluting the river, the waters, everything else. It was a breath of fresh air to me to hear this guy say you can't do it without cattle. And he did it with multiple species, goats and sheep and anything. Yeah. And he did when he would plant a cover crop. He didn't just put one. He put multiple species like the Japanese guy. Mm-hmm. You'd throw all kinds of seeds together and throw it out there. And somehow it works better when it's a multiple seed or a multiple species. Yeah. But. Yeah. um, If you look at our, you know, I was saying that agriculture should resemble a forest around here. But if you look at our land right now, we have lots of pasture land. And we've had 50 years of rest in East Tennessee of that land from crop agriculture, from tillage agriculture. And you know, management-intensive grazing is a, is a great is a great practice for this area where it's fairly low cost. It's it's not mechanical. You know, it's not you don't have a whole lot of infrastructure you have to have, but um, you can build soil and make profit at the same time. And it's it's really neat. I, I finally understood how that system works. It's it's great how basically management-intensive grazing is dividing a field up into a, a whole bunch of different little paddocks. And you, you uh, mob all the animals together like they're in their wild state, and they eat, you know, eat the, the grass down like the woman over there was saying to a certain level. Poop and pee everywhere, and then you you move them off. And the thing that I, I finally understood about this is what uh, somebody told me that grass is like a mirror. If it's this high above, the roots are this high below, or this this low below. 
And the more you, and, and once you chop that off, once the animal chops it off to this high, the roots die back and they're only that high too. They mirror whatever the, the height right. is. So it's, it's shedding all these roots. So if you let it grow high, it's penetrating those roots into the ground, taking carbon from the atmosphere, mm-hmm. depositing it into the ground, and then you cut it off and it just leaves it there. And, and little bugs can come and eat it. And it's, it's there improving the soil, you know, down to a, a large depth, more than 30 centimeters or whatever. And uh, that, that's a, that was a neat revelation, saying, wow, yeah. uh, these are tools. Auburn, I think, is one of the first universities that, that figured that out. Oh, really? Yeah. Auburn? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. But it's an interesting deal. I wish I was young to start all over again and see what's going to happen. But it's, we, are, you, are you a cattle rancher? Chad, thank you so much, and thank all of you. Another great session for Books Sandwiched In. Thank you for listening to Books Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.